I'm Joe Apgar, CEO of Pelotonia. The episode you're about to listen to is really special. The Pelotonia community comes together year after year to raise money for the OSU CCC James. And that's because we believe that we will end cancer through research. Tens of thousands of people ride, volunteer, and participate virtually every year in Pelotonia. They train and they fundraise in order to accelerate discoveries that will extend and save the lives of cancer patients all around the world. The researchers you're about to hear from inspire all of us at Palatania. They give us optimism and hope for the future through all of the groundbreaking research they are doing today. Each of these researchers has also been funded by Palatania. They're ending cancer through the innovative research and treatments they're working on. And we're excited for you to hear from each of them about the various discoveries and results that have been made possible by the Pelotonia community's tireless commitment to our mission of ending cancer. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Rafe Pollack. Rafe is a sarcoma cancer specialist, and he is the director of the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center. This episode is going to be a little different from what we normally do. After we've recorded the past several podcasts, we take a pause, and then I ask my guests the following question. What's something going on in cancer research or treatment that you're really excited about and has great potential? The answers were really fascinating and interesting, and we've put them together in this episode. I asked Rafe to be my co-host because as director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center, he knows all about the latest trends and developments in cancer research and treatment. Plus, Rafe is really good at explaining the complexities of cancer science in easy-to-understand language. Thanks for co-hosting, Rafe. Steve, it's great to be here. Uh, lots of exciting things happening in the Cancer Center. Yeah. We are about a year plus out from our every five-year renewal of the Cancer Center Support Grant that uh, enables us to maintain our comprehensive designation. And of course, the NCI does attach some significant funding to that entire process. So there's money on the line, as it were. Um, and in so doing, we are gathering up a lot of information about what's been going on in the Cancer Center uh, over the past uh, several years, uh, and two metrics which I'm just very, very uh, humbled and proud about. Over the past four years, uh, during this term of funding, we've recruited more than 200 new members to the Cancer Center. Uh, wow. Just the number of new recruits is larger than most cancer centers in the United States. And it speaks to the team effort that has been involved in that process. The other aspect that I'm also very, very uh, impressed with and humbled by is our overall cancer research funding from the National Cancer Institute, which has increased from $39 million a year three years ago to $65 million currently, which places us uh, among the top 15 in terms of aggregated funding uh, of all cancer centers in the United States. And we're, not, we're knocking on the door to break into the top 10. So a lot is happening that those metrics uh, substantiate. 
Wow, and it's really interesting from my standpoint because I've gotten to hear the past couple of years all the things you're talking about that have led to the increased funding from the high scores from the NCI. So keep up the good work. <laughs> well, it's the best collaborative environment for cancer research of any place that I know of and uh, the team effort that's involved. I, I like to joke with friends, maybe this is not appropriate about given what happened last Saturday, but excellence in team sports extends from the football stadium directly to the <laughs> cancer center. And we're very very proud of that culture of collaboration here. Okay, and I think you're right. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that last football game. <laughs> or at least not too much. Not too much. So <laughs> um, let's get into some of the answers that were provided by some of these giant team of collaborative scientists and physicians that, that you lead. Great. And let's start with um, Roman Skoraki who has been on the podcast several times. Uh, Roman is the medical director of the Stephanie Spielman Breast Center, and Roman also leads the James Division of Oncologic Plastic Surgery. And here's what he had to say when we asked him that question. I, I, I'll have to, I'm going to pause because I don't really want to say this because it's going to put me out of business, I think, being a <laughs> surgeon and all. Um, I, I, I'm convinced that I think that uh, the advances in, in chemotherapy uh, are probably going to, I mean, we're already seeing this, we talked about a little bit, this de-escalation um, where we're, you know, we're seeing uh, tremendous responses of tumors to, to, to the point where we, there's so much shrinkage that we can perform much smaller surgical interventions already. Um, but I would be surprised if, if within the next five, 10 years, we don't, we don't see continued tremendous advances almost to the point where maybe surgery will be obsolete for certain patient populations. Now you're talking about breast cancer, which is your Correct. specialty. Correct. And when you say chemotherapy, yeah. does immunotherapy play a role in that too? Absolutely. And so okay. I think what we're probably going to see, I, I use the grab bag of kind of chemo, uh, like a, a chemo agent, some chemical agent that will, you know, will help us, but absolutely biological agents lumped in with that, and probably a combination of, of, of multiple uh, different, and it may be even cryotherapy combined with some of these, which is certainly something that we're looking into as well, which is, you know, cold, uh, very Free localized freezing, cold therapy delivered in conjunction with some of these um, uh, other chemotherapeutic agents um, will will probably replace surgery for a good number of patients wow. in the so near future. If I understand it correctly, a woman who presents with mm -hmm. early stage, possibly a small breast cancer tumor, that's when this could be appropriate. And then instead of having to have a lumpectomy, which is a removal, partial removal mm -hmm. of, or a removal of the tumor and a partial removal of the breast as or and or a mastectomy that the chemotherapy immunotherapy combination cryotherapy could eliminate the tumor no surgery I, I would I would think so I would be surprised if that's not the case and I, and I and I, I I think maybe not even just the early stage I mean I think oh, that it's later. really going to be the, the 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 tumors that we can identify that have some kind of a signature something along in their cell that is targetable. So okay. something where we can create um, a, a, a therapeutic agent 
that can very specifically target that cell while having little or no effect on the remainder of the body, but being so effective at, at killing that one cell. I think that's the kind of uh, tumor, and it may not just be an early stage, but that's the type of tumor yeah. I think that will, that will lend itself for that type of therapy. That would be a huge revolution. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I take it you might be happy to be out of a job. I'd, I'd be, I'd be, yeah, I'd find something else to do. Yeah, okay. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Steve, uh, Dr. Skaraki is actually a very close personal friend. Uh, we worked together for almost 15 years uh, at uh, MD Anderson before oh, we were I both didn't recruited. Oh, that's right, yeah. So many, many operations we've performed <laughs> together over the years and shared patients. Uh, uh, Roman is absolutely spot on. There are so many amazing developments that are taking place in breast as an exemplar. Earlier and more strong screening processes coupled with genomic analyses are going to enable us to identify patients at the very earliest stages, even in the context of risk and therefore prevention therapies. The standard treatments, uh, Roman alluded to much smaller surgeries, we're seeing that happening by step by step on the basis of clinical trials, uh, lymph, lymphadenectomy, removing the lymph nodes from under the armpit. There are other ways that we can get that information. We don't have to sacrifice the entire breast, not hardly. Smaller and smaller tumor margins, less and less invasive procedures. Radiation, typically a five to six week proposition. We don't know if flash radiotherapy will work in this context, but if it does, a single treatment will offer the same co comparable benefits to patients. Targeted therapies, which are based on genomic analyses, instead of the standard systemic chemotherapies that have the potential to kill every cell in the body or at least damage, these can now be used to target very specific genomic defects in the tumor itself with much less side effect for the patients. And then finally, the emergence of immunotherapeutics as the fourth standard treatment for all types of solid tumors is going to have real applicability in the case of breast. Uh, such a common disease uh, among the population in general and, and women in particular. So I think Roman is absolutely spot on with his comments. We are seeing less therapy to accomplish more curative objectives. What a wonderful place to be. Yeah, so you're doing less invasive procedures and with less more targeted drugs, less side effects from the drug. So it's like a, yes. two advantages. And can this same, so this is where he was talking about breast cancer. Right. Can this same principle of treatment before surgery be applicable to other types of cancer and reduce the, the amount of operations and the side effects and how invasive yes. you have to be? Yes. Uh, this is this is a an overlying precept, if you will, by which we are increasingly approaching all solid tumors. It doesn't work for everyone. Uh, immunotherapeutics, for example, uh, has very specific types of cancers for which it is effective, others less so. But we're spending a lot of time and energy at the PIIO studying why it is that immunotherapeutics may not work 
for one or another type of cancer. And in so doing, we're very confident that as we understand the underlying biologies of immunoresistance, that we will be able to circumvent those with other additional strategies. So breast cancer, youth scientists are just a little bit further ahead, and other cancers, they'll catch up. And breast cancer is one that does get diagnosed really early, yeah. as opposed to some others. Right? That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Okay. Um, next, we're going to hear from Marcos de Lima. Marcos is a hematologist and the director of the James Blood and Bone Marrow Transplant and Cellular Therapy Program. The advance he described is something that he and his team at the James are already doing, and it's already having a tremendous impact on the outcomes for their patients. I would say cellular immunotherapy. Cellular immunotherapy. immunotherapy. Okay. Meaning, meaning educating the immune system by virtue of using cells to attack cancer. I think this is already happening uh, with limited success. Um, it is quite effective against some blood cancers, much less effective against solid, the so-called solid tumors. But I think the next frontier is exactly there. You know what I mean? We're going to learn how to bypass the defenses of the solid tumors, and we're going to be using more and more cells to treat them. So this is removing cells from a, a cancer patient's body, re-engineering them, and, and putting them back. them back in the body, and then they will do what? Well, we hope kill cancer. They'll better recognize and kill cancer. Right. And, and the other possibility, which, again, remains to be seen, but I think you're asking for the, the, 10, yeah, the future, five to yeah. ten years, is to use somebody else's cells. So meaning you do not use that person's cells at all, that, which may or may not have an intrinsic defect to start with, but you use a donor. And you get those healthy cells and do the same, meaning educate those cells to recognize a given structure in that person's cancer. What's the stumbling block preventing this from happening that will hopefully be overcome in the next yeah, several years? The donor cells, which intuition says, hey, that sounds better than using your own, the problem is they are rejected very fast. And you also have to prevent them from recognizing too many structures, right? You uh. wanted them to just go after what you want. So those two stumbling blocks are, I guess, the major ones, which is your ability to reject that cell from somebody else and the ability of that somebody else's cells to reject you. Okay. <laughs> so and it's, uh, yeah, you have to, to be careful there. But are you, how confident are you scientists will be able to accomplish those? I, I, I think we already have a few of those around against blood cancers. The CAR T-cell concept we've talked uh, about. Yeah, from, but in this case, from a donor, from right? A do okay. From off-the-shelf, if you would, cells already so made. So it's already started. Yes, it has already started, and it's showing promising results. Well, Marcos is also a, an old friend from <laughs> Texas days. Not everyone who's at Ohio State was recruited from Texas, but there's a large community of expats yeah. up here. Uh, we saw the light and got here as soon as we could. Okay. Uh, having said that, um, he's absolutely, again, spot on. The ability to recover patients' own immune cells uh, and then amplify them and transfuse them back into patients is kind of the, the, the golden ideal. Uh, but 
it's very rare, particularly if patients have had chemotherapy that can suppress bone marrow responses, that they have enough such oh, cells. Okay. So, and so developing the ability to use uh, other donors is going to be very, very important. It's just a different type of transfusion medicine than what people would associate with transfusions for trauma or GI bleeding because what we're transfusing are, is the actual immune competence. And again, there is need for research. We don't know why this doesn't always work. We do know the steps by which most immune cells recognize a tumor as being foreign, how they attach to tumors, how they develop and deliver mechanisms of death for the tumors, and then how they disengage and go find an additional target. But much of that work is still theoretical. It has to be tested in clinical trials. There will be side effects to these types of treatments that we can't totally anticipate at this point. But the promise of this approach is remarkable, and the talent that we have here in so many different areas that spans all age groups. This is also a program that involves physicians at Nationwide Children's Hospital as well as at the Wexner Medical Center with adult patients, has really enabled us to achieve a national and international visibility in this area. And I share Marco's uh, enthusiasm and faith uh, confidence that these types of treatments are going to be modified and will be applicable to patients. And as I mentioned in response to Roman's uh, video, these will become part of our standard therapies for solid tumors. It, it sounds like, in a sense, this is more equivalent to an organ transplant than a blood transplant. And that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you had that rejection problem with organ transplants that science has overcome, and it'll do the same thing for this eventually. Yeah, I, I guess it would come into the philosophy, can a single cell be considered an organ? Yeah. It has functionality, As, yeah. uh, multifunctionality. I was, maybe uh, I oversimplified. <laughs> but, but no, I think that there are, in many ways, that's, that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, and uh, some of the problems that potentially will need to be overcome have already been worked through in the area of kidney transplant and liver transplant, where there are also developments taking place uh, on a constitutive basis to make large organ, if you will, if we had a small organ, large well, organ yeah. differential, uh, much, much, that much safer and more effective for patients. Okay, so... This is going to be a theme in our next one is is uh, re-engineering cells. Right. And next is Margaret Gaddy Mays. Margaret is a medical oncologist who specializes in breast cancer, immunotherapy, and early stage clinical trials. And she is the section chief of breast medical oncology uh, at the Spielman. And her answer is a bit of a follow-up to what Marcos DeLima just talked about. And I don't think she's from Texas. 
So much of the cellular therapies to date have been like with CAR T cells and those types of agents. Engineering the cells to better recognize and exactly. kill cancer cells. Exactly, exactly. Because your immune system is a very potent tumor killing machine. And so tumors tend to try to figure ways to outsmart the immune system. And so these cellular therapies are a way to help kind of reinstitute that tumor killing machine within the patient's body. And so in addition to CAR T cells, there's a lot of other cellular therapies that are being investigated here at OSU, one of which are actually looking at natural killer cells or NK cells. And so several of our investigators here have been looking at NK cellular therapies, so similar to a CAR T, but it's more of like an NK cell that's a CAR. So instead of the T cells, they're exactly. going to re-engineer the natural killer cells. Exactly. You sound... Just the name makes them sound it does. ominous for cancer oh, cells. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> no, their NK cells are really important for kind of the baseline natural defense against these these tumors. Um, but we also have investigators working on re-engineering natural killer cells from healthy patients oh. and making them so that they are impervious or unaffected by some of the defense mechanisms the tumors put out. And so it's really exciting because I think with the, one of the benefits of utilizing the immune system is that we can see not only good responses, but we can see responses that last a long time because your immune system has a good memory, just like we see like with flu shots and COVID shots. So Margaret alludes to some of the other components of the immune system that I think we're going to be able to exploit for anti-tumor effects. And the uh, natural killer cells, NK cells, are called that because unlike T cells, they have a broader repertoire of targets. Oh, okay. T cells require a match of what's called major histocompatibility loci, MHC locus. That's why cross-matching becomes so important in T cell therapy, organ therapy, blood transfusions. NK cells do not have that restriction so they can identify something as being foreign attached to it and kill very very effectively that's the good news an even better piece of news given that tumors can metastasize through the bloodstream spread to distant locations are that nk cells are particularly adept at identifying foreign things in the circulation bacteria tumor cells, viruses, even some types of small parasites, frankly, and attach to them and, and kill on the spot. So it's a, it's a rapid delivery system. Those are all the good things. The things that are detracting is that it's a very small subpopulation of the overall immune effector cells, which is part of why it's so important to be able to take them out of a patient or out of a normal donor and expand them outside of their bodies and then give those back to a cancer patient. And here too, the Ohio State University Medical Center is a world leader in developing that specific application. So we are very, very positive about how this will impact on cancer care in the future. Wow, so as I'm listening to 
to the last two, it sounds like, and, and let me know if I'm correct, that CAR T-cell, where you're re-engineering the T-cells, is further along and is being applied to patients now here at the James with the natural killer cells, which shows great promises, not quite as far along in terms of clinical trials and patient application. That's correct, Steve. Yeah. But the, so that's further out and shows great promise. Great promise. Okay, and I think this this next one also has to do with re-engineering in, an, in another different way. Richard Wu is a medical oncologist who specializes in skin cancer and melanomas and the early development of new drugs. He also talked about the concept of re-engineering cells to better treat cancer. Yeah, I think one of our privilege of being a specialist in melanoma and skin cancer in general is that we're leading the way in terms of developing new immunotherapy approaches. Um, there, um, I mean, at, when, I attend, when I attended um, the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting a couple of months ago, there were some pretty exciting therapies that were, that, were, that were presented. One of them is a type of therapy called the oncolytic virus. Um, Say that again, oncolytic virus? Yeah, oncolytic virus. Um, basically, it's, um, it's an approach of taking and, and re-engineer herpes virus, right? The herpes virus causes the infection, but, but in the laboratory, we can remove the genes that can responsible for infection and replace them with the ones that can make them infect the tumor cells more selectively while stimulating the immune system. And, uh, and, 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 and this therapy is um, it's given by injecting into the patient's tumor with, a, with, a, with the idea of like killing, not, only the, not only killing cancer tumor cells, but at the time when cancer cells are killed, um, these viruses also release uh, these signals that can attract the immune system to make, a, you know, to, um, you know, to make, to, uh, to make the immune checkpoint therapies more effective. So it'll so, recognize the cancer throughout the body. Yes, that's the idea. And I mean, there's a, there, there are a couple of companies that they're, they're developing promising candidates in that, uh, in that area, which I'm pretty excited about. You were nodding as he was talking, so I think you think he's onto something. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the use of uh, viral oncolysates has been around for a long time, but what is novel uh, and new is our ability to reverse engineer the genes, if you will, oh, to okay. keep the ability to target intact while decreasing the virulence of a virus to infect other normal cells in the body that we don't want to have damaged. So that's, that's a very important new and we are increasingly coming to appreciate, as uh, Dr. Wu uh, uh, spoke to, we really get a twofer out of this because not only can the virus directly kill tumor cells, but in the act of killing and releasing certain chemicals from within the tumor cells, as well as their presence unto itself, it becomes an attractant for other immune cells to come in oh, and also kill. So uh, it doubles and triples the effort. Exactly. Uh, and all of these different mechanisms are going to be worked in concert with each other. One can see a situation where patients will receive combinations of immunomodulatory uh, treatment processes we have to define the sequence, we have to define the dose, we have to define how these treatments interdigitate with other types of cancer treatments. But the basic premise, is this worth pursuing? 
because these have tumor-killing abilities? That's absolutely the case. Now we're, in some ways, simply trying to integrate and expand their spectrum of cancer-killing processes. Okay, that's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, next is, is Peter Shields. Peter is a medical oncologist who specializes in treating patients with lung cancer, and his answer is, is a little bit different than some of the others. Yes. One of the things that I'll mention um, that we're focusing on that Ted Wagner has taken a lead on that I'm, I'm closely involved with and is very interesting is a way to really improve the quality of life for our cancer patients. You know, when they get diagnosed or whenever, they're stressed, they're depressed. You know, lung cancer patients have among the highest suicide rates. Mm -hmm. So in the media, there's a lot of attention on psychedelics. Psilocybin, ketamine, and others as a treatment for PTSD. You know, there's a real strong track record of, of treating mental health disorders, but it's still a new field. That has been in the news a lot lately, yeah. Very big in the news. And and as a, as a skeptical clinician, knowing that lots of research ideas don't pan out. You know, we got to get those trials done. But the potential for the impact is huge because if you have a lung cancer patient who's, you know, really trying to cope with everything, and we only see part of it. They're thinking about who's going to walk my dog, you know, when I'm sick, who's going to, you know, what about my income? And, and, you know, all of life gets in the way when you get this diagnosis of cancer. If we can help them be less depressed, less a better able to really think these things through, um, improve their overall quality of life, their, their anxiety, with psychedelics, that could be huge. But we have to test it, and it may not turn out. It may be that cancer is just too overwhelming and we can't correct those things. Cancer is a problem going forward, whereas right now most of the treatments have been for things that you've had in the past, PTSD yeah. or, or a history of depression. Oh, right. So, yeah. so, so it may not work. But we're really excited because we're slowly gearing up, because this is complicated stuff, to do that uh, type of research. Well, Peter's absolutely correct that the role of psychedelics is yet to be defined. Uh, their capacity to positively alter mood as well as perception may be very, very useful for cancer patients. I think we all recognize that it's a politically charged issue. That's for sure. And so it has yeah. to be handled in a very appropriate manner. And yes, we have to do the clinical trials to be able to be certain that the applicability, which we would like to see, is real. But where better a place to do that than an institution such as Ohio State with very strong psychiatry, psychology, frankly, the ability to grow mushrooms through the College of Life Sciences, oh, and we've had right. conversations about that. Uh, the College of Pharmacy, which is world-class in establishing dose-response relationships. So there's a lot of interest in pursuing this that, frankly, in the context of a cancer center that's embedded in a large world-class medical center, which in turn is embedded in one of the broadest and deepest university environments in the world, is clearly the right place to pursue these types of potentially groundbreaking studies. 
and it so goes, we're very excited. And it and it sounds like that key word collaboration is is running throughout this whole there process. There you go, exactly. Wow. Yeah. So next is Matt Ringel. Matt is a thyroid cancer specialist. He leads the Department of Molecular Medicine and Therapeutics and is the interim director of the Center for Clinical and Translational Science. And he is also the co-director of the Center for Cancer Engineering. Well, I think one real game changer that, that would make a difference potentially all the way from basic science through taking care of patients is is in this area linking some of the really exciting work being done to develop very sensitive sensors um, out of the engineering world, for example, uh, to medical care. So what do I mean by that? Um, So a sensor could be a way that, say, a, a protein in the blood could be identified very strongly because you can now detect some color that would come up or some impulse that would be developed from that sensor once that protein was there. A protein that could be a precursor or actual cancer. Potentially, right. So that's one example. Another way a sensor could be used uh, is to uh, detect something going on clinically in a patient with cancer already. Um, We've got projects that, that are interested in that particular question Right now, to monitor if their cancer is advancing, changing, or if ha- or if they've had a side effect to a treatment mm-hmm. that they need to know about to modify things that they're doing, um, you know. On and so I and, and so I think that that type of technology can work all the way from a very basic look all the way out to clinical care, so and that's really exciting. So when you say a sensor, it's not something that you would like strap on my arm like a blood pressure test or could it be or is it through a like my yearly when I get my physical and they do a blood draw to see my PSA or something like that will they now be looking for these other things I would say the answer is yes to both Uh, to both yeah (laughs) and that's what's so exciting about it Uh, basically I, I think of these as ways that can specifically detect something that's hard to detect but amplify it in a way that now you can recognize it so you could detect cancer at the earliest stages, almost sort of like a colonoscopy or a mammogram without those procedures, in theory. That would, in theory, that would be wonderful to every patient that has to go through those, those processes, correct. And, and I'm guessing that the result of this is earlier detection, which means better outcomes. Early, for that particular application, absolutely earlier detection and better outcomes. That and would then, be the goal. And then for patients already with cancer being treated, the same thing. It would, it would help their, their doctor give them the best possible treatment and monitor side effects and help them with their quality of life. Correct. Wow. That's pretty exciting. That would be cool if that could, if that could happen, for sure. And will, can it? Will it happen? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, <laughs> but I think we are heading in the right direction. So, Steve, this is yet another fascinating area of rapid development, and it represents, uh, again, the true collaborative culture here at Ohio State. There is tremendous presence in our biomedical engineering group in the College of Engineering to help us to design biosensors and other sensing devices that will enable us to isolate and identify 
tumor-specific biomarkers, which can be very, very important in a number of cancer disease contexts, such as early detection, uh, as was alluded to in Matt's uh, uh, video. Another area where right now we are hampered by delays in diagnosis is in the area of tumor recurrence. We know that some of the biomarkers get secreted by tumors, <clears throat> including very small numbers of tumor cells as an early warning sign that a tumor may be in the process of recurring. If we wait until the tumor is macroscopic, meaning that it can be imaged on a scan, we may delay the diagnosis and in so doing, cheat the patient out of a potential window of therapeutic opportunity. So this is gonna have tremendous impact. Uh, not all of the biosensors require an actual blood sample. We're looking at urine, we're looking at sputum as potential other areas that might be even more accessible. A patient could literally send a urine sample through the mail uh, to be monitored. Uh, that's another possibility uh, application. And uh, they're even thinking about wearable biosensors that could be uh, embedded in, in clothing for people who might have a chronic cancer condition in order to monitor changes on a daily basis. So lots happening in this area as well with high potential to make a difference for patients in the future. And so the goal is earlier and earlier detection. And our next answer from James Rocco also follows along that line. And James is a head and neck cancer specialist and the chair of the James Head and Neck Surgery Department. Like I said, his answer is related to what, to what we just heard from Matt Ringle. I think what I would say is the most exciting, and, and it started, it's, it's beyond just imminent, it's actually started, uh, is circulating tumor DNA. And this is the detection of DNA in your bloodstream from a blood draw uh, that has been released from a tumor that's in your body. A cancer tumor. A, yes, a cancer. Their tumor cells are always dying as well as growing. And the net result is growth, and that's why a tumor gets they, bigger they over time. They grow faster but, than they yeah, die. Yeah, but they're ones that are popping and dying, and when they do that, they're releasing this DNA into your bloodstream and you can detect it. So you can imagine that uh, a blood draw can detect this, and it's very, very sensitive. Um, so for example, before treatment, we often get a level. Let's say that level could be like 100, and then we could do surgery. And the day after surgery, that level is zero. And we're like, oh, that's a very, very interesting thing. Is it possible, you know, traditional clinical care would say, well, we're not just gonna do surgery, we're gonna follow that surgery with radiation or maybe radiation chemotherapy. But now we're like, but the blood test is zero. Yeah. What well, does that mean? Could we avoid radiation or could we avoid chemotherapy or could we lower the dose of that? Well, we're not sure. So we're starting to think about clinical trials to look into that to see if that's true. After therapy, if people have a, a level that's zero, we can use this test to follow them. So normally we do a physical exam at a regular interval. We do CAT scans, PET scans, MRIs, uh, scope exams, sometimes exams in the OR. And you know, they're pretty good, but um, you know, uh, patients have negative exams for a while and then the cancer comes back. Um, 
as an aside, but important, people always say, why, why do you say five years? Why do people right. say five, if you're cancer free for five years, you're cured. Why not 10 years? Why not three years? Why not two months? And that five years is based on the fact is that's the average amount of time a tiny amount of cancer cells take to grow to be detectable. So with this circulating tumor DNA, we can detect a much, much smaller amount. How small? We don't know. They're trying to figure it out. It's called minimal residual disease. What's the noise floor of these blood tests? But the noise floor of these blood tests is much lower than a PET scan, a physical exam, an examinee in the operating room or an MRI. The, so, no, the noise floor is the minimum amount needed that you to can detect. detect. That's so, right. And so instead of right. it being a 10, now it's going down to an 8, a 7, a 6. A, and, That's and right. It can be micro, and, okay. That's right. And also, if the tumor starts to grow, long before we can detect it with traditional ways, right. we see. may detect it in the blood test. And in fact, I have patients where that's happened, where the first thing that we found was a blood test that said the tumor right. is back. So I certainly understand how and why and the importance of doing this with people who have had cancer and after treatment, but will there be a day down the road where when I go in for my yearly physical and I get a blood draw every time, they'll be doing this circulating DNA test and can determine that there's cancer in me or anyone who does this test every year and they'll catch it when it's just a few cells circulating around in my blood or, or in one of my organs. Yes, that's coming, and I think faster than we think. Jim, Jim alludes to yet another application of this biomarker process that we just talked about. Uh, the fact that tumors, not all tumors, uh, release circulating free DNA that can be detected. All tumors release it, but our ability to detect it at this point has certain thresholds. So this has to be ultimately standardized if it's going to become, which I think it will, a standard approach to cancer detection. We would like to think that there's a holy grail that one test will identify all 500 or so different types of cancers that someone might have, but it probably is not going to work that way. It would be a panel of DNAs that are circulating, and it may be that in some tumor types, it's not the circulating DNA, but perhaps circulating RNA, which is much more rapidly degraded, or even the presence of a protein, uh, which we already know, CEA, PSA, those are protein-based uh, screening processes. But the use and utility of these types of approaches is absolute. The other aspect of this, and it ties into the whole question of genomics, we can at this point, for an individual patient, derive as many as 250,000 specific measures on a genomic basis. How can an individual, a clinician in a clinic, get their arms around 250,000 data points for every patient at every clinic visit? And the answer is obviously they can't, but the answer will ultimately be through artificial intelligence okay. algorithms. Okay. And we have a large group of bioinformaticians who are working closely with clinicians to help develop these types of approaches, which will need be needed in order to make 
the circulating free DNA and other such entities useful in the clinical context. But again, here is the place where that work can be done because of the collaborative environment that involves the full breadth and depth of one of the largest universities in the world. So those, that was our last answer to that question, maybe, because I'm going to put you on the spot. And as you, you, well, you probably have a lot of answers to this question, but if you were going to pick one as you look into the future, something that you're excited about. Well, um, let me exert the privilege of the podium and talk to you briefly about three things. Okay. Uh, but we won't go into as much detail. That might be the subject of another uh, podcast uh, later on. Okay. One area that we're very interested in pushing forward with that in some ways came out of the COVID vaccination experience is the use of therapies that are directed against RNA, circulating RNA. The idea of a cancer vaccination, for example, or drugs that could specifically target tumor RNA as another approach are being uh, initially pursued right now, mostly through the Institute of Immuno-Oncology, but that's a very, very exciting prospect for the future. Another- well, Real quick before you yeah. go on that, just I want to make sure I understand what yeah. is RNA? Well, RNA is a molecular construct that basically takes the message that is encoded within DNA as a template and as a single strand can then transmit that message into protein synthesizing machinery within the cell to synthesize a protein that may be part and parcel of a cancer process. So if you can interrupt that intermediate link, then the potentially damaging protein won't get produced. In, as cells grow and uh, multiply. Correct. Okay, now I got it. Okay, yeah. now your second one. Well, we have been a world leader in the area of digital pathology. Okay. And this is very, very important. A lot of people don't realize that the 35 eastern and southeastern counties in the state of Ohio are actually in Appalachia. And it's very, very hard for small community hospitals to maintain the capacity to diagnose cancer because it's very hard to get pathologists to relocate to a small town in the middle of Appalachia. To, there just isn't the volume and the support systems. But with digital pathology as an initial first step, we can now take a biopsy that has had a slide of the tissue prepared, which could be done by a technician, doesn't require an MD pathologist to do that, and then transmit that as an image. The new breakthrough, which is very, very exciting, is the application of artificial intelligence to read the slide right. okay. because we can detect certain patterns that don't rely on the human interpretation of a given area on the slide that's sustained with higher intensity or lower intensity. Those thresholds can be worked out using artificial intelligence, and then the algorithm itself will be used to tell us whether this is a biopsy of cancer 
versus non-cancer, particularly in those gray zone areas. Uh, and this is, this is a pursuit that is going forward right now at our center in the area of digital pathology, and it has the potential to truly address not only some of the healthcare disparities in environments that do not have access to that type of, of specialized care, but also enable us to make much more accurate and frankly rapid diagnoses than what we're capable of at this point in time. And this is already happening. This is already happening. Okay. Rapidly here. Yes. The the last area that I would just mention, uh, there is a, a new drug that is being developed in the uh, DDI, the Drug Development Institute, which is part of the Cancer Center. And the, the acronym for this drug is D-H-O-D-H. D-H-O-D-H. Don't, don't ask me for what <laughs> okay. that is shorthand. For, it's a complicated chemical descriptor. But what's so special about this drug, originally developed for multiple myeloma, is first of all, it can be potentially applied to a wider variety of both blood-borne liquid cancers as well as solid tumors. And what makes this drug kind of a hallmark for Ohio State, it is, it is the first drug that has been totally developed in the laboratories of Ohio State University that has now been carried all the way through initial FDA approval. Oh, it has gotten FDA approval. Initial. That's a, oh, initial. A, okay. There are several Next steps state. that okay. have to happen, but we've got, gone through the first step successfully. And this drug is for multiple myeloma and other cancers? We know for sure that it works in the laboratory against multiple okay. myeloma and other cancers are likely also to be successfully treated with this drug because we know the underlying molecular defects that it's targeting, which are not unique to myeloma. Other, other okay, types right. of cancers also have them. Uh, so this is very, very exciting work. Uh, has the potential to revolutionize cancer care for a variety of diseases. So... This must be you've been you've been a, a oncologist, a cancer doctor, a, a cancer surgeon for thirty plus years, and yet you're you seem more excited than ever. This is just a really exciting time in the future, and the goal of creating a cancer-free world is 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 possible. Well, absolutely. I can I can close with a very personal anecdote. Um, I'm one of five cancer doctors that I know of uh, at the James, who's also a cancer patient. I have uh, a, a disease called chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And at an earlier point in my career, when the drugs that we had available were typified by a drug called chlorambucil, which had about a 35% response rate. And as a result, as leukemia cells and typically uh, were taken up uh, and sequestered in the spleen, the spleen would get larger and larger and larger, and we would observe that process because we really only had one drug that was only effective a third of the time. And when the spleen reached a certain size, the hematology doctors would send that patient to me to remove the spleen as a therapeutic intervention. 
we actually uh, were very interested in doing this and wrote a number of papers about the role of the operation is called splenectomy in chronic lymphocytic leukemia. 25 years later, I underwent an operation for what turned out to be a splenectomy for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. I was very fortunate that the surgeon here at the James who performed the operation had read the papers that we had written 25 years later about the, or earlier, about the indications for this. But the true punchline... So you wrote the paper on the surgery that was then performed on you 25 years later? Yes. Wow, yeah. okay. I think that's called irony. Yeah, or, and uh, good luck. <laughs> yeah, and good luck. But, but the punchline is that once the diagnosis was established, I was eligible for a clinical trial looking at a drug called abrutinib, which has about a 90% response rate not 35%. So within my lifetime, for the disease that I was familiar with as a treating physician, I was able to see the types of changes that research has brought about. And I'm both humbled, proud, and grateful for the fact that much of the trials work that undergirded the development of this drug was done right here at the James and it's now being used worldwide to the benefit of all of us chronic leukemia patients. Wow, and, and as you were saying that, you talked about how you wrote the paper on the splenectomy Well, we wrote surgery. several papers and so, on it. Yeah. And now you're leading, as the, the head of the uh, Comprehensive Cancer Center, you're providing the tools that your great scientists need to do these new clinical trials and write these new papers that are going to move things forward and save other people's lives. So you're, you're taking it full circle and giving back in so many ways. Well, you're giving me more credit as an individual than I deserve for this. As a leader of this, a team. But, as a leader but, of a team. Yes. So, I'm, I'm just so very grateful that there are other people who are interested in trying to make advancements in the disease that I have. And this is the, this is the premise of of both basic translational, clinical, and for that matter, population research, which is why it is a relatively straightforward proposition to approach patients about participating in clinical trials, because your participation may make a difference to other people with this disease. And I speak from personal experience. Well, thank you for sharing that story, because it really does bring it into focus and personalize it and just show us how important and how meaningful research is and why we should support it and ride in Pelotonia and be aware of the great things that the James and the Comprehensive Cancer Center are doing. Well, Steve, it's always a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you about some of the things that are going on. We've, we've hardly scratched the surface and yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll look forward to the next such occasion later on. We'll do this again. For sure. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu. It's Joe Apgar again, CEO of Pelotonia. The work of these and all of the incredible researchers at Ohio State is absolutely amazing. You heard from Rafe about his own personal experience with these advancements in treatment through the research that's happening at Ohio State. 
His story is one of so many that have experienced the real impact of the Palatania community. Rafe is living proof. And as a cancer survivor myself, I understand his appreciation and excitement about all that's coming in the future. Dr. Pollock is a Palatania board member among many of his accolades as a researcher and physician, and we are just as excited as he is about the impact the Palatania community has on people all over the world. But we still have work to do. And you heard Steve. We need to keep riding in Palatania to continue funding the work of researchers like the ones you've just heard of. So we hope you'll join us for Palatania 2024. Registration is open anytime after Leap Day, February 29th, 2024, for riders, challengers, and volunteers to support our mission of ending cancer. Our signature event is the first weekend in August, with opening ceremony kicking off on August 2nd, followed by two days of road cycling on August 3rd and August 4th. Also, this will be our second year of our newest cycling event, Gravel Day. Pelotonia Gravel Day is September 28th. You can register at pelotonia.org and join us because ending cancer starts here at the James. Ending cancer starts with the Pelotonia community and ending cancer starts with you. Thank you. Thank you.